Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 291, Pandemonium. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. You can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Olivia, Paul, and Dario for signing up already. When King Edward died, the plan was that his second son would take the throne. By all indications, neither Edward nor the power structures within Wessex wanted Athelstan. The young Atheling had been discarded and was sent to be raised in Mercia, far from the halls of power. The throne of Wessex wasn't for him. It was for Athelstan's younger brother, Ilfweird. But he died soon after Edward, under questionable circumstances. And so, the path opened up for Athelstan. But it was a hard one. The fact was that many in Wessex didn't want him. And he was so unpopular in those circles that even a thousand years later, we know of the rumors of his illegitimate birth and the low status of his mother. The opposition to his rule was so significant, in fact, that even in charters, we read of conspiracies that were organized against him. And in the Chronicle, we see that it took him nearly a year before he was able to secure the throne. Even getting anointed was difficult with him having to provide gifts to the Archbishopric of Canterbury to even make it happen, since the Bishop of Winchester apparently refused. Athelstan was unwanted, pretty much right from the start. And I wonder what people thought of him now. If they were concerned that he would destroy the kingdom of the Anglo-Saxons, they were kind of right. That kingdom was gone, but it was replaced by England. Under his rule, the kingdom had nearly doubled in size from the time of his father, and he had brought almost all of the remaining kingdoms of Britain under his umbrella. Furthermore, when his reign was challenged and his kingdom was invaded, he had successfully defended it. Even when multiple kingdoms conspired against him at Brunanburh and his forces were outnumbered, still he succeeded. And when he wasn't leading troops on the field of battle, He was arranging international marriages, placing kings on thrones, acquiring culturally significant Christian relics, reforming the Church of East Anglia, and even laying down the foundations of a new justice system. For example, at around this period in his reign, Athelstan commented that he thought the death penalty was cruel. And while he didn't actually eliminate it, Athelstan did mandate that no one under the age of 15 could be subject to the death penalty unless they resisted arrest. Athelstan also renewed Alfred's commitment to literacy and scholarship. And he did all of this while also raising a clutch of royal foster sons, welcoming exiles into his court, and raising his own half-brothers. Athelstan was also making significant changes to the English military. As you might remember, the nobility was legally required to provide two mounted soldiers for every plow they had. And at Brunanburh, we saw why. Athelstan had a mounted division held in reserve, and he used it to attack fleeing soldiers. And most military historians believe that this was the tactic that inflicted the bulk of the casualties in that battle, and thus allowed the thunderbolt to break the armies of his enemies. And creating a mounted armed force requires more than just deciding to grab your sword and hop on the nearest plow horse. To have a reserve mounted division, Athelstan needed fast horses who wouldn't be spooked and who could carry armed soldiers. And unfortunately for Athelstan, 
the local horses of Britain weren't ideal for that purpose. For centuries, they've been little more than shaggy ponies. If Britain was going to have its own brigade of hooved death, the traits of a war horse would have to be carefully and deliberately bred into Britain's population. And as luck would have it, Athelstan had some ideal horses on hand, pretty much from the start of his reign. Back when Hugh the Great was seeking to arrange a marriage with Athelstan's sister, Hugh sent Athelstan a number of royal gifts, and among them were a ton of, quote, swift horses, end quote. Exactly the type of horses that you'd want for the division that later appeared at Brunenburg. And about a decade had passed since that initial gift, which meant that there was plenty of time for England to work on its breeding program. This trait gets bred in, that one gets bred out, that sort of thing. But that breeding program would only work if the stock stayed in England. And if you recall, Athelstan did create a new law that forbid the sale of horses overseas. That was why. And Athelstan didn't stop at cavalry. He was also busy reforming practices around military equipment. One such policy involved a new, particularly harsh fine for anyone who covered their shield with a sheepskin. Now, for quite some time, some warriors had chosen to cover their shields with sheepskin for aesthetic effect. And while a good sheepskin cover might make you look good on the field of battle, it could cause a problem. A covered shield is hard to inspect for broken or weakened planks. And a shield wall is only as strong as its weakest shield. So under Athelstan, a shield could be painted, but never covered. Athelstan also instituted currency reforms. He mandated that mints be limited to specific burrs and ports, and that only one form of currency would be struck at them. His. It was a policy of one kingdom, one currency. And in the middle of all these reforms, England also had that seven-year-long stretch of peace, which was likely the longest break anyone had in living memory. The point is that Athelstan had been busy. And now, after more than a decade on the throne... He was in his mid-40s and relatively secure in his position. He never married, which might have been his way of reaching a compromise with the supporters of his half-brothers, but I'm not really sure if he needed to be married. The purpose of a royal marriage was to forge alliances and to assure that there's an heir to the throne, but Athelstan had proven that he could forge plenty of alliances without ever getting married himself. And as for the heir to the throne, well, he had two, his half-brothers, Edmund and Adred. And Edmund had already proven himself on the battlefield at Burnhamburg. On virtually every metric, Athelstan had shown himself to be a very effective king. And that makes me wonder how he was viewed by all those people in Wessex who were initially opposed to his ascension. Did they warm to him? I'm not sure. Charters indicate that the court spent a lot of time in the various royal estates of Wessex, which could mean that he felt more comfortable there than he did early in his rule. But it also can mean that, like his time spent in Northumbria, he was there to solidify his right to rule, because for a king to rule, he must be seen. But, whether or not he won over his detractors, it seems like Athelstan himself was still holding a few grudges. While his reign was famed for the lavish number of gifts and relics and lands that were bestowed upon England's religious communities, there was one exception. Newminster and Winchester, which was his father's house and had opposed him, still sat largely ignored. But, feuds with Newminster aside, it really can't be disputed that in 938, Athelstan had proven himself to be a very effective king. And due to his rule, 
peace looked like it might be once again creeping in. But conversely, across the channel, all hell was breaking loose. In Brittany, Athelstan's foster son, Alan, was in control. And in 938, just one year after Brunenburg, he was formally elected as Brittanum Dux, and he became Duke Alan II of Brittany. But Alan, who seemed like the sort of guy who liked to finish a job, was preparing to hunt down the remaining Norsemen who fled across the Loire. And to do this, he built important alliances with the nearby counts of Rennes and Maine. Within this flurry of diplomatic activity, he also paid homage to his foster brother, King Louis IV of France. And this likely pleased both Louis and Athelstan, but that moment of diplomatic unity and their shared goals was actually a rare cool spot on a continent that was heating up. Western Europe had become a mess. Hugh the Great had thoroughly miscalculated the ambition and effectiveness of King Louis IV. Perhaps he thought that the boy would be like his father, Charles the Simple. But Louis was also of the line of Alfred and raised in the court of Athelstan. Far from being a puppet king, Louis had locked antlers with this overbearing regent and was struggling to throw him out of power. And it all began politically and socially. When he saw that Hugh was powerful in Paris, King Louis had his court moved to Lyon. When he saw that Hugh was feuding with the Duke of Burgundy and the Count of Normandy and the Archbishop of Reims, Louis made friends with them. Hugh married the sister of King Otto of Germany, well, Louis received homage from the new Duke of Burgundy, his foster brother. It was a constant game of move, counter-move. But through all of these machinations, things were rapidly descending into chaos. Furthermore, without a strong central leadership, the nobility, who had generations of bad blood between them, started to act out on their worst instincts. For example, Count Arnulf of Flanders, Judith's grandson and an extended cousin of Louis's, launched a war to expand his holdings. And some of the lands they sought to acquire were held by the Count of Montreux, who was the brother-in-law of one of Louis's allies, William Longsword of Normandy. And William determined that he couldn't just sit back while his brother-in-law was getting attacked, so he joined the war, which created a rift between Louis and William Longsword because Louis was a cousin of Arnulf. It also meant that Louis's cousin, Count Arnulf, added Normandy to his list of places to attack, which pissed off William, and so he marched into Arnulf's land, and whatever he did there was so extreme that then the Pope felt it was necessary to intervene. And that's how Louis lost a key ally, and how that former ally suddenly found himself excommunicated while he was at war with one of Louis's cousins. Meanwhile, Louis was also embroiled in a conflict thanks to another of his allies. See, Louis's chancellor, the Archbishop of Reims, had a beef with Louis's cousin, Count Herbert II, and it turned out that Herbert was an ally of Hugh the Great. And so, cousin or not, that put Herbert on Louis's shit list. And naturally, it didn't take much work for the Archbishop to convince Louis to lay siege to Count Herbert's fortress at Leon. But Herbert wasn't there, because he was actually in Reims, besieging their fortress. And so now, the power struggle between Louis and Hugh, which had been going kind of low-key on a social and political level, had escalated into actual violence, and they were now using some pretty unfortunate proxy wars to move against one another. The whole thing had turned into half-cold war, half-battle royale, and eventually everyone was getting dragged into the fray. And the alliances and grudges that underlied this conflict 
led to key players actually switching sides on occasion. And so you can imagine how Athelstan must have reacted to this news as it reached him in court, likely week after week, as he struggled to understand both the events of what was happening and also why it was all suddenly falling apart so spectacularly. But the war raged on. And in early 939, a group of hostages arrived at Athelstan's court. They were members of the French nobility, and they'd been captured by Count Arnoff in war. And Count Arnoff wasn't just Louis's cousin, he's also Athelstan's cousin. And presumably, Arnulf felt that the hostages would be more secure in Athelstan's court than in Flanders. The thing about that, though, is that when things are so chaotic that you're having to outsource your hostage holding, your war is not going well. But there they were, and suddenly, these hostages were Athelstan's problem. And I can imagine that Athelstan sat there, listening to the accompanying messengers explaining all of this to him. And he just kind of stared at them for a second and was like, what? To which the messengers probably said, pourquoi pas? You know, because they were French. But it actually gets worse. See, as France was devolving into infighting, so was Germany. King Otto of Germany, brother-in-law to Hugh the Great, and actually brother-in-law to Athelstan as well, had been running into problems. Specifically, he had some nobles who weren't happy about his reign. You see, his predecessor, Henry the Fowler, was actually fairly popular despite the fact that he was a non-Frank. And a significant part of that popularity was due to his approach to leadership. His position was that he was first among equals. And unsurprisingly, the nobility of Germany appreciated that stance. Otto, however, had been coming from a different perspective. He liked the being first part, but not so much the among equals bit. And so his approach to rule was significantly more authoritarian than his father. And the nobility was starting to resent that. And the resentment began early. In fact, pretty much as soon as Otto took the throne in 936, Lotharingia, under a guy named Duke Gilbert, tried to switch sides and offer France its allegiance. And that had to have upset Otto, because Duke Gilbert wasn't just some random noble. He was Otto's brother-in-law. But there's a twist here. See, while Gilbert did make that offer, he made it to King Rudolf of France. And King Rudolf died shortly thereafter. And in the confusion of that event, it doesn't look like Lotharingia actually became a formal vassal of France. Instead, they're inhabiting a strange space of quasi-independence, with a jilted overlord on one border and a half-baked ally on the other. It wasn't the best of circumstances. But despite Lotharingia's weakened position, there wasn't much that Otto could do about it at the time, because Lotharingia wasn't the only territory that was balking against this style of leadership. The Duke of Franconia was openly in rebellion starting in 937. And then things got worse in 938, when he was joined by the Duke of Bavaria, as well as Otto's own half-brother. And that means that while England was fighting off a multi-kingdom invasion and then trying to rebuild their third following the bloodbath, France and Germany were locked in internal struggles for stability. And Lotharingia was stuck in a dangerous position where they could potentially combine both the conflicts. It was getting ugly. And actually, the German fight in particular was getting ugly. Really ugly. Like... Otto's supporters murdering his own half-brother in a church type ugly. And so sitting in Lotharingia, Duke Gilbert was watching this, and he probably realized where it was all headed. So he joined the rebels, and he offered King Louis the throne of Lotharingia, 
presumably because Gilbert hoped to draw France into the conflict. Is your head spinning yet? I mean, the whole field was descending into pandemonium, and it feels like it was becoming a bit too much trouble to not fight. I mean, it's kind of like the start of World War I, or an English music festival. But the war raged on, and in Germany, battles between Otto and the rebels were sparking up all over the place, with both sides laying waste to the lands of their enemies. And then, on the 2nd of October, 939, Duke Gilbert and the Duke of Franconia were near the Rhine, and they were attacking lands of Otto's supporters. But two counts who were loyal to Otto spotted them, and they held their forces in wait. They knew that eventually the rebels would need to cross the Rhine. And so they just watched. Until finally they did. Once the rebels were halfway across, the count sprung their trap, killing the Duke of Franconia. And in the chaos that followed, Duke Gilbert drowned in the Rhine. And with that, the rebellion collapsed. Otto was victorious, and so he consolidated his power over Lotharingia. But there was a problem with that. Gilbert had given Lotharingia to Louis IV, and that meant that Otto and Germany were now transgressing on the rightful lands of France, and Louis wasn't pleased about that. But that being said, a single duke offering him the throne might not be enough to justify Louis's claim, so he looked for other ways to bolster his right to the region. And as f***ed up luck would have it, Gilbert left behind a widow, Gerberga, and she could bolster Louis's claim to Lotharingia, because not only was she the previous duchess, being Gilbert's widow, but she was also the daughter of Henry the Fowler. And so, Louis married her. Romance. But if Louis thought that this would solve his problems, he was gravely mistaken, because Gerberga was Otto's sister. And marrying Otto's sister without his consent did not sit well with the German king. Nor did Louis' subsequent military expedition into Lotharingia. And Otto wasn't the only person who was frustrated by all of this. He had some allies who weren't pleased with Louis either. French allies. Otto had the support of Hugh the Great, because he was his brother-in-law, William of Normandy, who apparently was still annoyed about that whole Arnuf of Flanders thing, and Count Herbert II, the guy who owned the fortress that Louis besieged. So suddenly, Louis found himself in the precarious position of having to fight off Germany as well as some of his own nobility. And predictably, they were advancing very quickly into his Lotharingian territory. And upon realizing how dire his situation was, Louis did what he probably should have done a long time ago. He asked Uncle Athelstan for help. Now, generally, Athelstan appears to have been content to let the boy deal with internal struggles on his own. And that was probably wise. If Athelstan rode to Louis's rescue every time he had trouble with a bunch of armed noblemen, he probably would never get anything else done. But this wasn't just an internal power struggle. This was a war. Gilbert had offered the crown of Lotharingia to Louis. So what Otto was doing was technically an invasion of French territory. Furthermore, considering that he was allied with Hugh the Great and William of Normandy, it's doubtful that this war would stop with Lotharingia. Regardless of whether or not Otto was his brother-in-law, the situation had gotten bad enough that Athelstan was convinced he needed to get involved. And so England, once again, prepared for war. The trouble, though, was that this was just two years since Brunenburg, and that had been a savage battle. And so his furred must have been terribly depleted. But Athelstan still had options. England had a navy. 
So he raised the fleet and gave them an order. They were to sail across the channel, meet up with Louis, and support his forces. And presumably, they would continue doing this until either Louis won or the Ferd was ready to offer further support. And with that, the fleet set sail. And these orders make sense to us today. We now have a long history of nations coming to the military aid of other nations. But in Athelstan's time and culture, that wasn't necessarily part of the English perspective. Typically, marching to support another kingdom only occurred in circumstances where you had an overlord demanding service, or when a few kingdoms put aside their differences to go and beat up on a shared enemy. But that wasn't what the fleet was doing. The fleet wasn't going to war for their king or their king's overlord. They weren't going to war for land, glory, or booty. They were going to war because the king's nephew overplayed his hand. And while Athelstan had a firm grasp on his own imperial ambitions and how this fit within that role, the truth is that he was asking English sailors to sail to a foreign country and attack a group of foreigners on behalf of another group of foreigners. Because reasons. It was a big ask. And once these sailors crossed the channel... Rather than meeting up at the chosen location and supporting Louis, they just raided up and down the French coast instead. And we aren't told why they did this. Maybe they didn't feel like joining this insane multi-kingdom war just two years after fighting their own insane multi-kingdom war. Or maybe they were just craving duck confit. I don't know. But what I'm sure of is that when Louis heard that his uncle's ships were raiding his coast, he must have been really surprised. And then the records tell us that just days later, on October 27th, 939, Athelstan, at the age of about 45, died in Gloucester. And we're told he died peacefully. Peacefully? Athelstan had spent over a decade developing the political ties necessary to establish an empire of England. He played the game and played it well. Marriages where possible, wars where necessary, Law, trade, economics, he had his hand in all of it. And as a result, he had fashioned a Europe where England sat at the center. Everyone was connected to him. And everyone sought his support and favor. And then, in the last two years, he'd watched as his supposed allies launched wars against him. And his continental allies began to batter each other to death. And meanwhile, what remained of his tattered military we're now pirating his nephew's lands along the French coast. I can't imagine he died peacefully. Personally, I think Athelstan died of a stroke. I would have. But, as Louis was rapidly losing ground to the forces of Otto, Hugh, and William of Normandy, and while the English fleet were having a grand old time grabbing as many baguettes as they could from any undefended ports, England still needed to select a new king. And Northumbria had some thoughts about that. They liked the guy who was sitting in Dublin. And now seemed like a pretty good time to make that happen. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter. You can find us at British Podcast. And you can join all our other communities by going to the upper right-hand corner of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And to mark the end of the age of Athelstan, here's the praise poem that's passed down to us through the Chronicle. Quote, Here King Athelstan, leader of warriors, ring-giver of men, and his brother, the Atheling Edmund, struck lifelong glory and strife around Brunenburg, clove the shield wall, hacked the war line with hammer's leavings. 
Edward's offspring, as was natural to them by ancestry, that in frequent conflict they defend land, treasures, and homes against every foe. The antagonists succumbed, the nation of Scots and seamen fell doomed. The field darkened with soldiers' blood, after in morning time the sun, that glorious star, bright candle of God, the Lord Eternal, gilded over the depths until noble creatures sank to rest. There lay many a soldier of the men of the north, shot over shield, taken by spears, likewise Scottish also, sated, weary of war. All day long the West Saxons with elite cavalry pressed the tracks of the hateful nation, with mill-sharp blades severely hacked from behind those who fled battle. The Mercians refused hard handplay to none of the heroes who, with Olaf, over the mingling of waves, doomed in flight, sought out land in the bosom of a ship. Five young kings lay on the battlefield, put to sleep by swords. Likewise, also seven of Olaf's jarls, countless of the reigning army of seamen and Scots. There, the ruler of Northmen, compelled by necessity, was put to flight, to ship's prow with a small troop. The boat was pushed afloat, the king withdrew, saved life over the fallow flood. There also, likewise, the aged Constantine came north to his kith by flight. The hoary man of war had no cause to exult in the clash of blades. He was shorn of his kinsmen, deprived of friends on the meeting place of peoples, cut off in strife, and left his son on the place of slaughter, mangled by wounds, young in battle. The gray-haired warrior, old crafty one, had no cause to boast in that clash of blades. No more had Olaf cause to laugh, with the remnants of their raiding army that were better in the works of war on the battlefield, in the conflict of standards, the meeting of spears, the mixing of weapons, the encounter of men, when they played against Edward's sons on the field of slaughter. Then the Northmen, bloody survivors of darts, disgraced in spirits, departed on Dengas Mera in nailed boats over deep water to seek out Dublin and their own land again. Likewise, the brothers, both together, king and atheling, exulted in war, sought Kith, the land of Wessex. They left behind to divide the corpses, to enjoy the carrion, the dusky-coated, horny-beaked black raven, the gray-coated eagle, white-rumped, greedy warhawk, and the wolf, gray beast in the forest. Never yet in the island was there a greater slaughter of people felled by the sword's edges before this. As books tell us, old authorities, since Angles and Saxons came here from the east, sought out Britain over broad ocean, warriors eager for fame, proud warsmiths, overcame the Welsh, seized the country. End quote. And then everything went to hell, and I'm pretty sure he had a stroke. Thanks for listening. 